Second Timothy chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Listen to the word of God. You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me through many witnesses and trust to faithful people who will be able to teach others as well. Share in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serves in the army and gets entangled in everyday affairs. The soldier's aim is to please the enlisting officer. In the case of an athlete, no one is crowned without competing according to the rules. It is the farmer who does the work who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in all things. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, a descendant of David. That is my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that they may also obtain the salvation that is Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is true. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our eyes and our hearts that through your word proclaimed, we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is a great gospel song called, I'm a Soldier in the Army of the Lord. Uh, if you remember the movie Apostle, which is a great movie, it's, you know, it's been out about 30 years ago, maybe, not, maybe 20 years ago. But Robert Duvall plays a uh, Pentecostal evangelist pastor, very mixed guy. It's a very powerful story. But towards the beginning of the movie, he's been away uh, on an evangelistic trip. And he comes back, and the youth director has taken both his church and his wife. I'm sure there's a lesson in there somewhere. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I was at a colleague who said he didn't like to go on vacation because bad things happened at church when he was on vacation. So I would say that, you know, if the youth director took your job and your wife, that would be one of those bad things. But anyway, so Robert Duvall comes dancing in as they're, as they're uh, playing, I'm a soldier in the army of the Lord, and puts an offering in the plate as if he's reconciling, but it doesn't turn out so well. So uh, I encourage you to, to uh, watch that movie if you haven't. Uh, Lyle Lovett does a great version of this song, and you should listen to that as well. And if the choir was here, maybe we'd get the horns out and the guitar and we'd sing it, but uh, they're not here today, so we won't do that. But it's a powerful song. But it's a kind of a strange idea, this idea using a military illusion for the faith. On, on one level, because our Lord and Savior was killed as a capital criminal by the Roman legions. Paul himself will be a victim of an execution by the state. Um, matter of fact, in the early church, you could not serve in the military and, and, and be part of the church. Now that changed after a couple hundred years, in part because Roman soldiers were being converted into the faith. Matter of fact, there's a story uh, in the year 316, there were 40 members of a legion that refused to give up their faith 
they were all Christians, and they, uh, the, their commander made them stand on an ice lake all night, and they froze to death. So the, the 40, the martyrs of the 40, is um, particularly in the Eastern Church, they are recognized. So um, as Christianity grew, they, they kind of adjusted that rule. Um, and certainly this military imagery makes its way into the church. Uh, pretty soon we'll be in the time of Christmas, right? And so who will we hear ringing bells? The Salvation Army, who literally takes this passage and organizes their whole denomination. It's a denomination around this idea that they're soldiers in the army of the Lord. When I was, my first job in ministry while I was in college was I was a choir director and a youth director. I actually took the youth director job and then they said you have to direct the choir too. Uh, and it was an interesting group of people. Uh, half of them were tone deaf, so that made it a little bit of a challenge being the choir director. Uh, but we, we, made a, we made a joyful noise nonetheless. And this was kind of a revivalist church, so they had Sunday evening services. And when I didn't have youth group, I had to lead uh, the singing, kind of like a Baptist sing lead, song leader. So that's, a, that's old school there. Uh, and we had an evangelist one night, Pastor Dan. Now, Pastor Dan was a wonderfully dear old man. He was very enthusiastic. I think he was about 80, but he was still preaching. Uh, and uh, he was up there preaching and talking about being a soldier in the army of the Lord. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily totally on board with this idea. So I'm, I'm trying to sit up front being interested, you know, and trying to be polite. But I'm young and I'm distracted and I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with the message. And finally says, because we're soldiers in the army of the Lord, we should march. And I, and I, you know, I thought he'd say metaphorically. He says, no, we should march. And he turned around and says, Bill, come march with me. And so we marched around the, con the congregation singing victory in Jesus. And uh, it was one of my more awkward moments in ministry. I love Pastor Dan, but that marching around the church, and it was pretty funny because no one in the church wanted to march either. But Pastor Dan kept yelling at us, and so we all were spent a Sunday evening marching around the congregation singing victory in Jesus. Um, I'm not going to have you do that this morning. But there is something about this idea that Paul picks up, both in terms of an athlete and a soldier, that the kind of singular obedience that you're to have in the military. For instance, when a commanding officer, some of you, I was not military, some of you were, when the commanding officer tells you to do something, you go, well, let's talk about that. Right? No. You have to, there's a singular focus. And... <clears throat> This idea that in reality we're all going to serve somebody, right? <laughs> you know, that old Bob Dylan song. And so Paul sees the Christian life as being one in service to the only one who deserves our absolute allegiance, Christ. And the idea that life is a struggle, I mean, that metaphor works, right? It, it works, because a lot of life is a struggle. I mean, there are people that we all know who are fighting. They're fighting to get off alcohol or drugs. They're fighting against their addictions. We have people who are going through treatments. They're fighting for their health. For some people, maybe you've been in this, you've been in this situation as well, 
Sometimes you have to fight to get out of bed and get into your day because of all the struggles that are both within and without you. You have to fight to make ends meet, right? Okay. It's interesting. Um, walking with my mom through all the things that she's gone through this last year, as well as you know, struggling with her, you know, mental her her mental capacities as well. She had a stroke a number of years ago, and 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 hasn't you know has has struggled to recover from that. And we're moving her from the house. I mean, the house that her that my dad and her had saved their money for. They didn't get a penny from anyone else. They worked hard. They saved. This was the house. This was, you know, not only a place they lived, but in many ways it was a symbol of their life together. And and for ha- having to give that up, I can't imagine how hard that is. And also the fact that her life revolved around dad. And so she looked at me at one point where and we we're talking through stuff, and she says. I have to fight every day, she said. And I think it's very—it's a very real thing. It's very real. And so this idea that if life is a struggle, having the perspective that Christ is our commander, Christ is our leader, that we're fighting not only for ourselves, but we're fighting for something bigger than ourselves, I think is a powerful metaphor. The fact that we're not fighting alone, okay? And for Paul, it was part of the way he put meaning into his whole life. From the time that he was revealed, it was revealed to him that Christ was the Messiah. This militant zealot of a Pharisee became totally sold out for Christ. And truly was a soldier in the army of the Lord. I love this line in here that I'm chained. Paul's in prison here for his belief in the gospel, but the word of God is not changed. I'm sorry, the word of God is not chained. It's not changed, but it's not chained. Probably many of you have seen this quote has been uh, popping up a lot lately. Uh, John by John Adams, second president of the United States. Facts are stubborn things. And whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. You know, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Well, facts are hard things to keep down, how much more is the truth of the gospel? I think properly read, the Bible can be a source of truth, not only about God, but if we listen to it, the Bible is a truth about our own lives, right? Martin Luther once said, the Bible is our enemy. Because every time we read it, it should destroy us. And what he means by that is by when we think about what God calls us to and what we actually do, (laughs) there's a kind of conviction, right? I think the famous quote Wesley said, uh, you know, console console those who need comforting. And, you know, I'm getting this quote wrong. The word to trouble the comfortable and console the troubled. And I think that's what the Bible does. I think the Bible is a word of comfort and hope for us when we need hope and comfort. 
But when we're complacent, or if we are lost in our sins and our bigotry, if we truly read the Bible, it can explode our common prejudices, our common inclination to justify ourselves. You know, there are still countries in the world that it's illegal to have a Bible, or it's illegal to bring a Bible into. It's not a large list. Okay? North Korea and Saudi Arabia are two that immediately come to mind. I remember hearing somebody who worked for Brother Andrew. I went as a kid, or as a teenager, I was taken to a mission conference. Some of you may remember who Brother Andrew was. He was someone who uh, was anonymous. I think we know who he is now. But for many years, he was an anonymous person who was smuggling Bibles into the Eastern Bloc countries, into, into the communist countries. And there's something really interesting about the idea that the Bible is a dangerous book. Right? That the Bible, that you had to smuggle the Bible in. In fact, it's one of the reasons the Chinese are repressing uh, non-state churches right now. And it's not well publicized, but Christianity is a large impulse behind what's going on in Hong Kong right now. The gospel is a dangerous book. It's one of the reasons southern slave owners were reluctant for their slaves to learn how to read, or many of them were reluctant for them even to become Christians. Matter of fact, one of the most tragic, if not ironic, laws that was passed was there was a law that was passed, I forget in which state, where it said, just because you're baptized doesn't mean you're free. Can you imagine a Christian legislator making a law that says, even though you're baptized, you're not free? But that happened in our own country. Bible's a dangerous book. The gospel is a dangerous book because it doesn't stay quiet. The truth is not something that you can ultimately keep down. Now, you can do a good job. There are a lot of people who believe in lies. And we all have a bias. We agree with the things that we agree with. When we hear something that we agree with, we think it is true. And when we hear something we disagree with, we think it's not true. So that's part of what's going really kind of crazy in our society right now. But if we clearly listen to the Word of God, then it will confront us, it will convict us, but it can set us free. Now, there's this wonderful tension in the gospel. And we see it in the last couple of verses of our text. Is this idea that if we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. It's wonderful. It's probably a hymn. Paul quotes the saying, so it's probably a hymn or some sort of little creed that the early church already was saying. But it, it creates this wonderful gospel tension. One of the things I find interesting about our current situation 
is how much both consciously and unconsciously the culture of entitlement has influenced our theologies and our popular Christianity. Now, I'm not thinking about the obscene prosperity gospel or the idolatrous merging of nationalism and religion. Those, that's been going on ever since the beginning, almost the beginning. Okay. But what I find interesting is kind of this newest version of the universalist debate. Universalism is the idea that everyone is safe. Okay. Um, in the history of the church, that idea that maybe everyone might be saved really was born out of an idea of maximizing the work of Christ for God so loved the cosmos. Okay? That's where that idea came from. It, it was a minority opinion, but it was in the early church. Okay? That the work of Christ was so great that perhaps in the end, maybe even the devil repents. Okay? That was some speculation. It was a speculative idea, but it was there in the early church. But it was not the majority opinion. Now, when you know, among liberal Christianity, it became this idea that as a reaction to extreme Calvinism, which you know, we come out of that Calvinistic framework, that all right, if God elects some for salvation and some for damnation, you know, a good God would never choose to send someone to hell. So the universalism as an 18th century and 19th century movement was part of kind of classical liberalism. Okay. Now, there's a new version of it. It's come back again. And, and, and part of it, to me, is what's interesting about the newest version of universalism is that it it's, comes at a time when we give trophies for participation, right? <laughs> it's almost like this idea, everybody gets to heaven because the crown of life is a like a trophy for participation. Okay, You showed up, you get to go to heaven. Which, to me... <clears throat> Kind of cheapens the idea of, of our need, right? Okay. Now, I, again, I I um, I'm not here to say one way or the other how I feel about this issue today. I, I can do that some other time. But the Bible kind of holds this wonderful tension that I think is an important tension to keep. Okay. We don't get heaven because we deserve it. Okay. Heaven's a gift. Christ's sacrifice for us was something that God initiated. So for us to truly appreciate the grace of God, we should always be thankful. It's not something we deserve. Okay. There's a great story in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. And in the book, I think I've spoken about it before, is a bus trip goes from hell to heaven. It may be Hades, it may be Purgatory. You're not sure. It's a C.S. Lewis. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a uh, kind of a satire, not satire, but it's an allegory. And anyway, it's kind of a funny, it's a funny book. And so people get on the bus and they come up to heaven, and they have an option to stay if they are willing to give up the thing that kept them in hell. And almost everybody chooses to go back to hell. Okay, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting thing. But there's this one story in the book of a guy who had been a foreman. And he speaks with a Cockney accent. And the citizen of heaven meets him. There's a citizen of heaven from your life that meets you to try to convince you to accept God's grace. And the foreman is very offended 
because one of his workers who had murdered a co-worker in a drunken rage is the citizen of heaven. And so the foreman is furious, first of all, that this guy's in heaven and he's not. And at one point, the foreman finally says, I don't want any bleeding charity. I only want what's coming to me. To which the citizen of heaven says, no, you don't want what's coming to you. You must embrace the bleeding charity. Now, what is a curse word, a curse English slang? Also is the revelation of the scandal of the cross. Rather than thinking we should deserve to be in heaven, we should be grateful for the mercy of God. We don't come to God from our strengths. We come to God at our point of need. But the tension, I think, also collapses in this idea that if we are faithless, he remains faithful. It's a powerful idea. There's a text that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that says, Though I fail, he will remain faithful to his covenant. The power of being a soldier in the army of the Lord is not in our ability to win, but it is in the faithfulness of the captain of our soul. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let us stand together and say what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed.